Good morning, everyone. Um, we're getting closer and closer to Christmas. We're continuing to pre prepare our hearts for for uh, the Holy Spirit to make Jesus even more powerfully real and present in our lives. Again, the idea of of uh, even preparation is that there is a deeper deeper experience, a deeper encounter with the presence of Christ. It's his relational presence, not just his everywhere sustaining presence, which everyone has, but it is that that uh, in his presence is the fullness of joy. That's his relational presence. At his right hand are pleasures forever. That, that's the relational presence of, uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so <clears throat> we're turning to uh, Luke chapter 2. We've been, we've been looking at Luke's uh, gospel for the Christmas uh, narrative for our preparation. Uh, today we're looking at the initial verses of chapter 2. Chapter 2 is Luke's account of the Christmas message. Uh, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. One of the things that's uh, really special about reading the Christmas story from Luke is that Luke is unique in his, in his angle, his perspective in writing on on the, the story of Jesus' birth. He's a historian. He's getting his information by, um, you know, getting people to testify, getting people to give their account. And the account that we're getting is a direct account from Mary herself. And there are these details in this passage that are, that are you know, truly historical details. Um... When, when Luke opens his gospel, he writes and he says, With this in mind, since I have myself carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that's who he's addressing, his, his two volumes, both Luke and Acts, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So Theophilus here, it's a Greek name, and, and is, Luke is writing this, this gospel, he's writing his narrative to explain to Theophilus and to Greek readers a historically accurate account of Jesus. So he tells Jesus' birth from a historical context. Luke makes sure that his readers know that Jesus is a real person, a historical person. You know, that, this is the awesome thing about really understanding biblical faith. You're, you're not taking a leap of faith. You're embracing what is true. Your faith cannot make something false true. Your faith can only embrace what is true and then let that truth be activated in the way you think, the way you decide, the way you view everything. So Luke is making sure they understand the historical accuracy of the birth of Jesus. It was during the reign of Caesar Augustus. 
It's during this time that a census, this is a historical detail, a census was called for by Caesar that caused then Joseph and Mary to make this long 80-mile trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem. As Caesar's rule of Rome, he's actually serving the purposes of God because the Lord of history, our God, even uses the great Caesar, Augustus means great, so the great Caesar, to fulfill prophecy. God was shaping world events, even using Caesar, to bring about the birth of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In this, in this passage, you see, already you see prophecies being fulfilled. One, uh, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Two, Jesus would be born from the family of David. This is, this is huge. Three, Jesus would be born of a virgin. And then four, Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Four other prophecies, some of them going all the way back to Genesis, uh, certainly going back to King David, going back to Isaiah. I mean, these are hundreds of year old prophecies being fulfilled through the decree of Caesar Augustus. Pretty amazing. It really is something that we need to take into account as we are going through things we don't understand, inconveniences, sacrifices that we do not understand, losses even. And yet here we see that the God who loves you and who has sent his son for you is also the Lord over history, sovereign. Even the events of history serve God's purposes to save mankind. He's the Lord of your history, but he's the Lord here, we see, over all of history. And our salvation, and the, the most important event in history, is anchored in history. Because Joseph was of the house of David, he had to go to Bethlehem to be counted. Because the trip to Bethlehem was also a fulfillment of the prophetic word of the Lord. And God brought it to pass. So that all these things are brought together. Now, as we study this, and, and Lisa's going to spend some more time on, on Luke 2 tomorrow, but I, I can't just stop there. there. Not only is there a historical reality here, there is just a profound reality in Luke's narrative. You see, Luke, he focuses on Jesus' birth as, as being born into a world of poverty and need. Of course, this is historically accurate again. But, but listen and think with me for this. Mary, recounting to Luke the surroundings of Jesus' birth, is saying, look, God has not come to the rich and powerful. Isn't that God doesn't love all people, but he didn't come to the rich and the powerful. Mary is recounting how, how God came to the poor and to the needy. I mean, Luke's story doesn't have wise men who have rich and precious gifts. Luke's story has shepherds who have absolutely no gifts and who have no standing in their society except to be the, the scum, in a sense, of society. 
even later on when Joseph and Mary are fulfilling their their religious obligation to take a sacrifice to the temple for their child, Luke makes it clear that the sacrifice they give is not a rich person's sacrifice, but it's actually the sacrifice of the poor, of those who have little or nothing. And so you begin to see, you begin to see something that Luke is about in terms of the historical reality of God's concern for those who are poor and those who are needy. But what he's doing is he's putting a historical perspective on the Apostle Paul's theological perspective, biblical and theological perspective. You see, Luke was a companion of Paul in, in, in many of his missionary journeys. And Paul makes it really clear, and, and this is where I really want to focus today. I mean, our God is a sovereign God, but he really cares for you in every need that you have, in every, every situation that you face, every weakness, every limitation that you've tried to, to overcome or hide or whatever. God meets you right there in that place. And here's, what, here's the way Paul put it. This is 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This is one of the most startling contrasts. And in some ways, it's the very heart of the Christmas message. And unless we find this, we, we don't really understand or really uh, experience the real meaning of Christmas. It's this contrast. He who was rich became poor so that we who are poor might become rich in him. See, in other words, yeah, even, if, even if you have all the worldly trappings, even if you have all the worldly resources, if you do not understand your poverty, if you do not understand your brokenness, if you do not understand your weakness, then you will never be rich. Because you see, it's the embracing of this contrast. And the story itself is full of this staggering kind of contrast. Let me, let me give you three this morning that are here in Luke chapter 2. Lisa will look at them in a bit of a different way, but I wanted to, I wanted to, I just was touched by the, the so much by the meaning of this that I wanted to share it with you today. So the first of the contrast. Again, remember, he became rich. He who was rich became poor so that we who are poor may become rich. So the first of the contrast is this. When, when Gabriel revealed to Mary the baby's identity, he called this baby who would be born in her womb, he called him the son of God. But yet, what we see then as Mary and Joseph traveled to Bethlehem, is this one who is identified as the Son of God is laid instead in a manger. Do you understand the distance between these two truths? Here is the historical record. Jesus is laid in a manger. But Jesus is the Son of the living God. And Mary, you know, Mary really is the one who is filled with wonder at the contrast, and he, she's the one explaining it to Luke, and Luke then is filled with wonder as he explains it to us. 
I don't know if you've seen all the verses of Oh Come All You Faithful, but there's this one part of a verse where it says, Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Here is the Son of God. And he's, he's willing. He's willing. He chooses vulnerability. He chooses weakness. He chooses to be dependent in his mother's womb. In some ways, when you, when you look at this and you say, why, do, why would he do this? Why would he who was so rich become this poor? And you can say, well, well, obviously it is love and his love for us. But, you know, you could love something and not sacrifice this much. For example, I love my dog, but in order to help my dog, I would not become a dog. There's something very special here. There's something so unique in this action that uh, love becomes, in a sense, a, a partial answer, but it's not, it's not the full answer. There's no doubt at all that this is born out of love for us. But why does he, why does he love us in such an incarnational way is really, the, in a way, the, the question. He takes our weakness and our frailty at its very lowest point. He shares our deepest needs. He even experiences our darkest, our deepest emotion. He was rejected. He was despised. He was forsaken. He was counted as if he were a criminal. He, he was treated by his own father as if he were sin itself. He was willing, you see what this means? Not just to love us from a distance. He was willing to take even our deepest need. He was willing to suffer our greatest loss. He was willing to take the thing which really is the root of all our fears. He was willing to take on death for our, for our sakes. See, it's not, it is love, obviously. But in a way, it's more than love. Because he wanted to understand in every way the deepest of our weaknesses. He was willing to feel our most negative emotions. And he was willing to experience what we fear most. And he did it in a body like ours. And he did it in a reality like ours. And there are some people who have said to me, well, there's no way Jesus could possibly know all the temptations that I have known. No, do you understand the power of temptation is only as great as what is needed to make you fall or make you give in to the temptation. So Jesus, who never gave in to any temptation, experienced the fullness of the power of that temptation without ever falling under that temptation. So he, in every way, is able to sympathize. He's able to to more than just say, isn't that too bad you're going through that? But rather, he says, I've gone through it. I will take you through it with me. There's some sense in which if you really begin to understand Christmas at its deepest level, it's not a call from God to live for God. It's not, not that that's not important. But if you try to live for God for a while, you realize, I really can't do this. It's a call to let Jesus live your life 
in you, for you, with you. It's a surrender to the only life that has been lived to the fullest. And the reason that you can have such absolute confidence that you can surrender that way is because not only does he love you, he doesn't love you from afar. He loves you knowing everything you're going through and having the strength to go through it not only with you, but for you. More and more, you start to realize if you really want to have a victorious life, it's his presence and you yielding to the presence of his character, his attributes. It's his victory and you believing and receiving his victory. He did more than just love you from afar. He, he has gone through everything you go through, every weak moment, every limitation. But secondly, there's a contrast in the Luke 2 uh, passage. See, the angel Gabriel said he was born to be king. And yet, we see this contrast. Kings are not laid in mangers. Kings are not put into, you know, dirty places, you know, kind of filthy with animal uh, presences and all that. That's not a king's, it's not a king's bed, not a king's cradle. I mean, think about what Revelation chapter 4, verse 8 says. Here's, here's what he is worthy of. Here is what he was used to. It says, in the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You see, that's where he belongs, the king. And that's what belongs to him, the, the ascribed glory of his holiness. I think this is the part that gets to me. He chose a manger. I mean, I, I know how the story is told. It looks like he, there is no choice. They have to, you have to take this, this, you know, this stable. They have to take this place where the animals are kept. And there's no place to put him but a manger. But you see, he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. If he was not willing to be placed in a manger, and if the father was not willing for his son to be placed in a manger, there would not have been... You know, there would not have been a problem at finding a king's bed. Do, do you understand what this story is saying? They're saying, our king chose a manger. He chose. He chose poverty. He chose need. You see, if, if he had not chosen it, it would not have been so. This is not a story to make us feel sorry for Jesus. This is a story to make us understand this is his choice. That was the place he wanted to be. If he wanted to be anywhere else, he could have been anywhere else. There's a, a Christmas carol. I don't sing it much, but I, I know I've heard these words before. Lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. That's the contrast placed in a feeding trough. Why was the king willing to be placed in a feeding trough? I think part of it is because he's come to fill those who are hungry. 
He's come to be the bread of life. He's come to be the source of both filling your hunger and satisfying your thirst. And one person said this, and I, I have to admit, it touched me so deeply. Our Lord Jesus began his life in something made of wood. He would conclude his life on something made of wood. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was choosing from the start to the finish. There's a, a poem by a lady named Lucy Shaw called Mary's Song. It's such a powerful poem, but I wanted to read just a little part of it. So here is Jesus laid in a manger and she writes, hearing no music from his other spheres, breath, mouth, ears, eyes, he is curtailed who overflowed all skies, all years, older than eternity, now he is new. Now native to earth as I am, nailed to my poor planet, caught that I might be free. Blind in my womb to know my darkness ended, brought to this birth for me to be newborn, and for him to see me mended, I must see him torn. Some reason this, this has touched me so deeply today to realize the contrast. This is Mary's song, but it's a poem by a lady and it's just amazing. He's older than eternity, but now he is new. Nailed to my poor planet, caught that I might be free. And you know, we see these pictures now of what it is to be an embryo in the mother's womb, what it is, and, and you know, utter dependence, blindness, utter dependence on mom, utter dependence for life. Here's the one who, who gave us all life and breath, and yet in his, in his mother's womb, he was in darkness. But he did so that our darkness might end. That's what she says. Brought to this birth for me to be newborn. And for him to see me mended. It's talking Mary talking. For him to see me mended, I must see him torn. I, I can't help because I think things in scripture are so intentional. I can't help thinking that it was intentional. That he started his life. And something made of wood. And he concluded his ministry and he finished his work nailed to something made of wood. Specifically to be torn upon the cross is how he will see us mended. For him to bear the judgment of his heavenly father. You understand it was his choice. This was no accident. This was not backed into a corner. He, he said to his father, send me, let me bear it. Every action, a choice for you and me. You see, the first contrast is, is so much so that, that you and I have to understand. He understands you so deeply, more deeply than you understand yourself. And anything you're going through, he, he nailed his own life to what you're going through. But secondly, he wanted to deal with the bigger picture. That you might be right with God. That you might be mended. He was willing to be torn. He who was rich became poor so that you being poor might become rich. The last one is also profoundly sweet. 
here's the son of the most high. And they wrap him in swaddling clothes. Now, you see, when you see Christmas pageants, a lot of times you see, and he's dressed, you know, they wrap him in kingly robes and beautiful things. But truthfully, that's not what swaddling clothes were in the ancient days. They were binding cloths. Every single limb of the child was bound tightly because they, they had this belief in their ignorance. They had this belief that if the limbs were not bound, they would grow deformed. So here is the son of the most high God, the king, the son of God. And they have him ignorantly bound up as if, if they don't do it, he's going to have deformed limbs. Again, Luke later on shows the picture of Jesus bound to the cross. And we have a clear picture as well that it's the same kind of ignorance. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's so powerful what he was willing to go through so that you might have relational presence with the Father, through the Son, with the Holy Spirit. There's a Christmas song I've always loved. The I don't, It's just a beautiful song. I wonder as I wander out under the sky that Jesus my Savior did come forth to die for poor, ornery people like you and like I. The ignorance of the people who bound him at his birth, thinking his limbs would need that. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Father's Son, and those who bound him because they thought they needed to kill him and get rid of him and get rid of his message. That even in their ignorance, he was doing something for them so deep, so profound. He was making the way through death and making the way, the only way, to God. As you meditate this week, you see that Jesus has come and centered himself with the poor, with the needy. He's nailed himself to the poverty of our world and the poverty of our spiritual lives. The King has done that for us. And so we look and we say, all of this is intentional. This is a divine plan. If the king didn't want to be in the manger, he wouldn't have been in the manger. If the king wasn't willing to submit himself to ignorant men, he wouldn't have submitted himself to ignorant men. But he, who was ancient, became new. And for him to see you mended, you and I, have to see him tomorrow. What a powerful message Christmas is, this contrast and the intentionality of our God to bring you and to bring me into right relationship with him. Would you receive afresh this intentional love, this incarnational love? It wasn't enough to love you. He had to become like you in every way so he could lead you through death, be torn, to bring mending. In Jesus' name, amen.